chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 42 and all the way through to verse 43 tonight. Apostle John writes, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Father, we just pray as we look at this concept of a silent belief. We pray, Father, that you would reveal to us what your will is. We pray, Father, that you would show us, is this even possible? Is there even really such a thing? And so, Father, as we look at this subject that has been debated so much in the church, we pray, Father, that your truth would speak to us. And so guide us through this section of Scripture. Show us, Lord, what your will is. And I pray as we see these things, we would rejoice, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. It's just days before the Lord's crucifixion, and what we're seeing here in chapter 12 are the last public sermon, is the last public sermon of our Lord before He goes to the cross. What we'll see in between this time, chapter 12 and the cross, is instruction for the apostles, but this is the last time that the Lord is speaking publicly before, again, He is crucified. In writing about this last public sermon, the Apostle John, he's going to stress three points, three main points. We saw the first one last week. It was in verse 36 through 41. We saw the hardness of an unbelieving heart. How man can continuously callous his heart towards the gospel to such a degree that his heart becomes impenetrable. Not that God isn't able to penetrate such a heart, but God does give us a will in this situation, and it's somebody, again, who becomes so hardened towards God that he slips away to eternity apart from a relationship with God. And then in verses 42 through 43, we'll see there will be those who seem to believe but will not come forward. And then next week we'll look at verses 44 through 50, the relationship between the Father and the Son. And so the question, the question must be asked. Is it possible to be a Christian and to keep it secret? Is it possible to be a born-again believer and nobody really know? I mean, what good does it do to truly be saved, to have your life changed in such a miraculous way that it speaks volumes of what God is able to do in your life, but then to keep it in and have nobody know? I can't remember who I was talking to. It was just today. Anyway, we were talking about the changed life of a believer. Whoever I was talking to was telling me about the example of somebody... Oh, no, I was just talking before service with Martin Joby. He was talking about his, uh, his brother and just the change that God has done in his brother. And he's saying it's just amazing. It's just a, a mighty testimony. And, and it's supposed to be. His brother saying... And his brother has a brain tumor. We prayed for him last week. And his brother says, just the remainder of my days, I just want to enjoy this new Christian life. And it's an amazing thing to see God move in somebody's life, especially in the final days, but regardless. My mother-in-law, as we, my wife and I went back to Oklahoma a few years ago. She's out in California now, but back then, and just to see the change that has come over her life. We can kind of fall into routine with the people that we know, and even our own, uh, our own lives with the Lord, as far as the change that has been made. But it does so much good to see somebody whose life has been changed, and there's the outward expression. Just to know, and, and in so many different areas of our lives, just to see God's hand move, and just to know that God's in it. God's mindful, and God cares. Even when it's the hard thing, just to know that God's in it, 
and God cares. Even when he's correcting us, just to know that God's in it and God cares. And what it does is it strengthens our faith and our hope for the future. And so we must always be reminded of the twofold reason that God saved us. First, he saved us simply because he loves us. He loves us and desires to spend eternity with us. Secondly, that we would display his personal love for us through our public love for him. That what he has done in our personal lives, in that quiet place, in the deep spot of the inner person, that that would be expressed outwardly into the life of somebody else. I mean, that's how God moves. We looked at the feeding of the 5,000 in children's ministry, and it says that the Lord's heart was stirred by a spirit of compassion as he saw the people. And we saw how he provided for the people. There was the Lord in his heart of compassion, and there were these people who had a great need. And there were those who came in between that the Lord used. And it were these people that the Lord used, the apostles, as he fed the 5,000, that, well, they were the ones who were obviously serving the Lord by serving the people. And so that should be us. God has a heart of compassion to the people who are of the world and desires to meet them. But as Christ came, and when he comes again, it's going to be to judgment. The only way that he has chosen to enter into their lives is through us, is through the changed life of the born-again believer, as we now have a heart for those who were unsaved, those who were perishing because we were formally in that boat, if you will, but the great love that the Father displayed towards us upon the cross was strong in our lives and brought us into this Christian faith. And so we are to be examples of Christianity, of what God is able to do to this world so that the world knows of the existence of God. Again, we live in a black time, a very dark time, I guess I should say, and we are to be lights in that time. And especially as it's dark as dark can be, we have such a greater opportunity to shine so bright. So, is it really possible to be an undercover Christian? You've heard it said before, if, you were, if it was illegal to be a Christian and you were brought into court, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Don't just let that get past you as a Christian cliché. If it was really illegal to be a Christian, would they be able to bring witnesses against you? Think about that for a while. What is, are there people out there that can point to you as being a Christian? Or have you kept it all inside? Now, keep in mind what the Lord said. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, he's not talking about going back to the Old Testament and going through all the Old Testaments there. Jesus made it really easy for us. He brought it back down to two. Love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and love others as you love yourself. Are you doing that? And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you shall, be, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. Are you being witnesses to him? Are you keeping those two commandments to the best of your ability, not for salvation, but because of salvation? And then secondly, because of salvation, are you being witnesses to him? And then in Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 9, also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And I guess you could look at that 
you want to reason it out in your own mind anyway, well, I may not confessing him, but I am not denying him. But by not confessing him, we are denying him. And so we must consider these things. If I'm truly a born-again believer, and I am I exhibiting signs of a born-again believer? If I'm on the Los Angeles Rams football team, I'll exhibit signs that I'm on the football team. I'll have the uniform. People will look at me and say, that's a Los... won't look at me, but they'll look at somebody who is and say, that's a Los Angeles Ram. And they look at you and say, that's a born-again believer. So we look at these things, and I guess you would have to say, well, I guess it is not possible to be a, a Christian and to hide it. But then on the other hand, we see Mr. Nicodemus. Nicodemus, we see him in chapter 2. He came to Christ at night. We see in chapter 7 when the when the Sanhedrin were debating Christ, he would chime in, but he really wouldn't stand up and stand forward. And then at the crucifixion of the Lord, in John chapter 19, verse 39, it says, And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh, alloys, and a hundred pounds, about a hundred pounds. And so he was there at the Lord's death, and He was there ministering in his mind to the Lord, and we finally started to see at the Lord's death an outward expression of what seems to be salvation. It seemed to be very slow. But then on the other hand, James Montgomery Boyce, commentator, who's since gone on to be with the Lord, said, secret discipleship is a contradiction in terms, for either the secrecy kills the disciple, or else the discipleship kills the secrecy. So in your life, which is it? Have you killed off the secrecy through your discipleship, your outward expression of what Christ has done in your life? Or is secrecy killing off the discipleship within your life? I've seen so many times the secrecy kill off the discipleship. I'm sure we've all experienced that. I have as well, even in my own life. And so... In this nation, and really in our society, we can so look at the great men and women of history who have stood up for their beliefs, who have been willing to come front and center, the founding fathers, those who signed the Declaration of Independence. The majority of them were killed or or persecuted because of signing that document. Or Abraham Lincoln, he was a man who stood up when he realized even though he realized that the nation was going to go off into war, but he stood for what was right and ultimately prevailed. We just recently, was it yesterday, celebrated Pearl Harbor. When that happened, this nation stood up and did what it needed to do, did the hard thing, and can't imagine what it must be to to go to war. And then we just today even are remembering John Glenn, John Glenn, that astronaut who passed away today, that man who he probably... I have a fear of flying. It'd probably be a lot worse being shot up into space in a spaceship, in a rocket. But nonetheless, this is a man who did what he felt that he needed to do. And so we have a respect for these people. Why do we have a respect for these people? Because we wonder, if we were in their shoes, would we do the same thing? The knee-jerk reaction, of course, is yes. But what happens when it's really, when it's really tested? When it's really put before you? Would you put your name on that document, that Declaration of Independence, understanding what England would probably do to you, your family, and how they would take your property or whatever it might be? Stand up as Lincoln did against slavery when you realize because of your decision that hundreds of thousands of people would probably lose their lives? 
volunteer for war when you see your nation is being threatened or you know just thing you know John Glenn to do what he has done to go out into outer space because well we can got to continue to stretch our our minds and stretch our our, our knowledge and, and our learning and that's why we respect them because don't know if I could don't know if I would but we do have that opportunity to the capacity to which we have been called we are standing for something even greater than the principles for which these people stood for. You can build moral reasoning behind the founding fathers and Abraham Lincoln, Pearl Harbor, Junglin, and, and anybody else, but we have something that is even more than a moral reason. We have an absolute reason of truth that has been laid not only before us, but upon us and within us. And it's because of what God has done in our lives how much more so should we be able to stand? Because, see, these people stood, excuse me, for concepts. The founding fathers, the concept of freedom. Maybe it was going to happen, maybe it wasn't going to happen. Abraham Lincoln, the concept of coming up against slavery. Maybe it was going to happen, maybe it wasn't. Pearl Harbor, you can go through that whole list. But as far as God, God's happening. It's not an if thing. It's not a maybe thing. What are we told in Romans? We're told that we're more than conquerors. That means we go forth and witness and, and fight this battle from the standpoint of victory. Why would we not do it? It can be so easy if you look at it. I mean, if you're looking at it third party and take away the aspect of, uh, uh, of the flesh and take away the aspect of, of spiritual warfare, it should be really easy in this country to be a Christian but what if you lived in a country where your life would be required for your beliefs? Syria, Iraq, wherever, Iran, wherever it might be in that area of the world where people are literally losing their heads. I found this, now this is a few years ago, this is before ISIS, so I would imagine you could even increase these numbers, but it says there are over 164,000 Christians martyred every year for their faith. That's one every three minutes. 200 million daily face imprisonment, torture, or death. 400 million live in countries with legislation specifically discriminatory against Christians. Many are women and children whose only crime is the object of their faith. But nonetheless, they continue to move forward in their faith. How much more so should we be proactive in this nation where God has granted us freedom to express our religion. And we can sit there and point at all the things that are happening and, and, and how we've had these restrictions placed upon us. Somebody, a Christian in Syria, would laugh in your face. You know, if you told them, well, you don't understand the persecution that we're facing in the United States. We face nothing. We face absolutely nothing. The worst they're going to do is talk bad about us. Again, I think I've used the illustration before. You go to heaven, you're sitting at a table with Isaiah and the Apostle Paul, and, and you start talking about the persecution. And Isaiah, what happened to you? He got sawn in half, tradition tells us, for his faith. Paul, well, there's a whole list in Philippians of what happened to him as far as shipwrecks, lashings, and beatings. And then you can look at so many other people, and then they would all turn, how about you? Well, they were mean to me. I mean, really? You know, for, for the most part, that's the extent of it. As I've said so many times before, there's not a one of you in this country who is going to be killed for your faith. Maybe things will get worse, and maybe I'll be wrong. If I'm wrong, then you can come to me after you're dead and tell me I was wrong. But 
I can pretty much guarantee you, Lord tarries and all, and we don't enter into the time of trouble, you're not going to get killed for your faith. You might be persecuted, but persecution is based upon, or at least the degree of persecution is based upon, well, as I look at what these people are suffering, it's really not a whole lot. How come we're not out there living our faith? Again, verse 42, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. In order to understand what the Bible is telling us here, I want to look in this section of Scripture of three key verbs. That's what we'll be doing in our study here tonight. Three key verbs, belief, confess, and love. The first one, believe. Nevertheless, even amongst the rulers, many believed in him. Now, we looked at this line of reasoning when it comes to belief. In order for somebody to believe something, there has to be the concept presented. Concept would be the gospel. Secondly, is the gospel possible? Is it even realistic? Well, yes, it is. Is there proofs to it? Well, there's been proofs that have been going on. The express belief the expression of belief by the born-again believer for the past 2,000 years, and then there should be this gulf that you have to take this leap of faith across, and then there will be the reality of the belief working in your life, and again, the reality of a person who's become born again. So again, remember the context that we have here. The Jews, the Jews, they're seeking a sign. They're not looking for really a true proof because a sign just points you in a direction, but belief will not come through a sign, or at least solid belief, a sure belief, will not come from a sign. And actually in the scriptures, we see this combination of signs, we see a combination of the word, the more sure word of God, and then the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what really brought everything together but you can't break out signs and make signs the tall tale. That's what the Jews were trying to do. And then there's the Greeks. The Greeks we saw earlier in verses 20 through 22, they wanted to see Jesus. They just simply wanted to see Jesus. The Jews were so caught up in all of their traditions and everything, they had a prescribed way in which God needed to move in order for them to work, and part of that was seeing a sign Now keep in mind, the sign, that was to the same degree that Israel saw as they were being released from Egyptian captivity when the Lord led them from from Egypt through the wilderness as a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. The Greeks, they just simply wanted to see Jesus. Again, verse 42, nevertheless, even amongst the rulers, many believed in him. So Greeks wanted to see him but also he was revealed for who he was to the Jews as well. And so faith faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, but not signs. So there were some that were open to hearing what the Lord had to say. It always seemed like the religious leaders of the day, they had their ears plugged by their traditions so they couldn't hear the words. They were blinded to the Lord looking for signs. And we saw last week, there is a general unbelief amongst the Jews, but not all were believing, just as not all Greeks were believers as well. Not all were unbelieving, just as not all Greeks were believers. The first Christians, 
they were Jews. Caesar, who's a Gentile, he would later kill Paul, obviously an unbeliever. But the Lord wants us to know, because again, what we studied last week in verses 36 through 41, we saw the hardness of man's heart based upon the word of God as Isaiah had spoken of these things. But even amongst the hardest of hearts, unbelief is never total. Unbelief is never total across a people, but even within a person from our perspective. Never do we give up on anybody. Never, never, never do we give up on anybody. Well, doesn't it say that we're to wipe the dust off our feet at some point? That doesn't mean that you give up on the person. That means you move on and let not one person bog you down. That means that you go out and you share as the Lord gives you opportunity. But do you ever, especially if it's a loved one, do you ever really stop praying for that person? If you have a child who has a hard heart towards the Lord, do you ever really shake the feet off of the, shake your feet off? Shake the dust off your feet? I mean, I don't see how you could. You continue to pray for that person, and you continue to intercede for that person. Even in the Gospel of John, whenever John speaks of unbelief, there are always believers in the midst of them. In John chapter 7, verses 30 through 31, it says, Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him. So there was this element of unbelief to such a degree that they want to kill him. But also, there are those who are presented that believe in him. Then John chapter 10, verse 39 through 42, it says, Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him, and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. And then in John chapter 11, I've got verses 45 through 45, so I'll just read it, verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. And so again, there are those who, who, who are absolutely rejecting the Lord. Verse 46, but some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. But there's always that element of belief. And it's that element of belief, or at least potential belief, that we as born-again believers should live for. We should be looking for that, never knowing when it's going to come. Again, I mentioned my mother-in-law. That was probably, what, like a 15-year salvation was like a 15-year process. There were times when because of the gospel, she didn't even want to talk to us anymore. There were times of silence there. And, and, and it's those times that you can just be of the mindset of quitting and giving up. But then, after 15 years, it was on a Monday night. I know, because I had to turn off Monday night football. Because she turned to us and said, tell me what it means to be born again. And that made the 15 years, the difficulty of the 15 years, well worth it. And, you know, there's so many stories like that that we, we all have. And so we see that we never give up because always in the midst of unbelief, there's always that opportunity. And it seems that existence of a belief with a, in a group of people, but also even it seems as within an, an individual. How do we know if they're really saved? How do we know if anybody is really saved? I, you can't go there. We're not called, that's what exactly what is being spoken of in Matthew chapter 7 about judging and not judging. We can't judge somebody's salvation. 
we make the best evaluation that we can and we just simply go from there. But we are told in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus has eyes like flames of fire. And those are eyes that see right through to the soul of a person and that all mankind is naked before him. Do we really know if anyone's saved? Well, the only person that you really know who's saved is you. And that's got to be number one priority. And then anybody else's salvation that it's going to spring forth from your ministry is going to spring forth from your salvation. You're saved, you're moving forward in the Lord, and the Lord will use you in the lives of others. The second verb makes a turn to the negative in confession, not that negative, uh, confession is a negative, but how it is used here. Verse 42, Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. The best you can say about some people is, is that they say they believe, but you're just never really sure, and you may never get that surety of their salvation. But really, the rest is up to them and their walks with Jesus Christ. I mean, look at even people in the Bible. King Saul. He was a man who at one point was filled with the Holy Spirit. But then you look at his life. Was he really saved? If you gave me King Saul and you had me write a paper on the salvation of King Saul, I think I could write a paper on that. If you had me write a a, a paper on how King Saul wasn't saved, I think I could write a paper on that as well. And if you want to look at King David, I could do the same thing. The thing about King David is he did a lot of great things and God used him in amazing ways. A man after God's own heart. But the problem with King David is we know a lot of his sin. And that can be hard to get past. Even though we know all of our sin and God got past all of that. And then there's King Solomon, a man who allowed all of these wives that he took that he was told not to take, although he did, they stole his heart away. And it was even more than that, and that he built areas of worshiping for gods, worshiping false gods. Could a man like that possibly be saved? I could write a paper on how he's not saved. I could write a paper on how he is saved. We don't really know. I believe that he is, and I believe that's the, uh, that he is the author of Ecclesiastes, and he comes to the conclusion of, of who God really is and purpose. And then I speak of my father a lot, was my father saved? Well, for 99.9% of his life, he wasn't saved. But then, on his deathbed, he received Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. But was he really saved? I mean, was he really, really, really saved? How do you know that he was really saved? I mean, he didn't have much of a walk. He never got up and walked again. Wasn't baptized, never served the Lord, never took communion in belief. He took communion in his relationship was my father really saved? Well, then you would have to question, was the thief upon the cross really saved? Well, that's an easy one. We know he was because Jesus said that he was. Today you'll be with me in paradise. But as all that man did was confess Christ, and that made all the difference. I could tell you, that's all my dad did. That made all the difference. It's all the difference within my heart, but it's all the difference in his eternity as well because that's all that's needed. Because the problem is God, God's got his ways and then we like to dump our ways on top of that. And we make our evaluations and, and, and our sets of rules and all of these things. And then we start becoming the same things that the Pharisees were. Because of your traditions, Jesus said, you negate the word of God. And so we've got to be careful that we don't do that. 
And I have my pet peeves. I have my, my, my little convictions and all. And I've got to make sure that I'm not dumping those things on other people because God hasn't done that. God has given grace and he has set us free. If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And Mike can't send you back into bondage, nor should anybody else even try to do that. Because what are we doing when we're doing that? We're, tr- we're, we're trying to overcome what God has done, the simplicity that grace is. And so we've got to find joyce in the simplicity of grace because you were no mature believer on the day that you were saved, but you were saved. Unfortunately, and the Scripture tells us this in Hebrews, I can't remember if it's chapter 10, but the, but the Scripture tells us that there's some people that never advance past that, that, that beginning, that immature stage of their Christian lives. And we can start perceiving that long, drawn-out immaturity as a lack of salvation, when in actuality, it's not. Pastor Mike, aren't you supposed to be encouraging us to live on fire Christian lives? Yeah, I pray that you do. Because, see, the sad thing about it is, if you live a life like that, how much of a guarantee do you have that you're really saved? I'm not saying you are or you aren't, but you can't really say you are or you aren't. I mean, scripturally, scripturally considering it, what was it that they were so concerned about that would hinder their witness to the Lord back here in John chapter 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. We must consider what is the cost of public belief, because there is going to be a cost. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, I believe, therefore I speak. But there is going to be repercussions for the things that we say. Because when we boldly stand up and speak, as I've said before, we're going on record. This is my position. And see, a lot of us don't state our positions because we can't defend our positions. But when it comes to the gospel, the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance what needs to be brought to remembrance so that I can state my position and I would be able to defend my position. So I'd say to you, no matter who you are here today, if you are a born-again believer, and if you are moving towards maturity, making forth the effort, I guarantee you, if you go on record publicly, the Lord will publicly enable you to display Him through bringing what is necessary to your remembrance. But the problem is, you don't get guarantees on the front end You only get to see reality on the back end. And what I mean by that is, as you're going up to confront a person or a group of people or whatever it might be, you get the guarantees of the Word of God, but that's it. But afterwards, you'll see that, wow, I was used by the Lord. I didn't even know that I knew those verses. And and again, it's God who is working through the person who is willing to stand up. As far as the cost of discipleship in Luke chapter 14, verse 25, it says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them. Now, this is interesting. We're always looking for great multitudes in the church. Calvary Chapel, we're looking for great multitudes. In the Gospels, great multitudes weren't always a good thing. It says, if it, Jesus turned and told them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life also, he cannot be my, my, my disciple. Now, he's not telling us to go out and hate these people, 
but he's saying you must love them less. Christ has to be your number one priority. The ultimate advice in marriage counseling, if you want to love one another, you've got to love Christ even so much more. He has to be your priority. Verse 27, And whoever does not bear his cross, remember our cross that we bear is where we nail our flesh, our desires to, and live for his. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? At least after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who is coming against him with 20,000? Or else, why the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. He's not talking about an office here. He's talking about what we are called to be. Jesus commanded his apostles to go forth and to make disciples. And so he's telling them to count the cost. That's why it is wrong to stand up here and give an altar call and say, come, God just wants to bless you. He wants to give you a good life and all of those things. God does want to bless you and give you a good life, but it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy, and it's going to require something. There is a cost to discipleship. You are commanded to take up your cross, to nail your flesh, what you think is right, your desires to that cross, and then to live for him. And so their cross, what they're concerned about, back in John chapter 12, um, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess them, least they should be put out of the synagogue. Well, it's in their minds, to be put out of the synagogue, that's to be excommunicated, if you will. They're going to be barred from public worship. They're going to be excluded from religious life. They're going to lose position. Very possible, they're going to lose jobs. They're going to lose security. Women could lose their marriages. And again, we see all these things seemingly that have come to fruition in the book of Acts as the believers were rejected by society. John chapter 9, verse 22, the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. And so what it boils down to is, bringing it back into reality in our day, is that conflict between cheap grace and grace of value. Cheap grace, now God's grace is not cheap no matter what, but just how it is perceived from the born-again believer's standpoint. Cheap grace is what so many in the church can so easily practice. Today, we've cheapened so much. We have politics without principles. We've pretty much experienced that. Pleasure without conscience. Wealth without work. Knowledge without character. Industry without morality. Science without humanity. And worship without sacrifice. And in a Christian life, you can't have a Christian life without the reality of what God's grace is. God's grace is grace of value. To understand, although it's been given to me as this free gift, it's the most valuable thing that I have ever received. See, grace has been given freely, but it wasn't free. It came about because of the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I went out in the parking lot and gave you a rock. After I left, you probably, this guy's insane. You'd probably throw it back out in the parking lot before you left. I seriously doubt if you would take that little rock and put it on your mantle at home. This is the rock that Pastor Mike gave me. Now, 
if I came and I gave you a 10-carat diamond, you would value that. Wow, Pastor Mike would be the greatest guy in the world. Either that or he's really dumb, one or the other, but this is great, and you would put that in a prominent position, and you would value that. Well, look at the magnitude what Christ did so that we would be able to have grace within our lives. We would have that unmerited favor. We should hold that grace dear to our hearts. And I've heard it said by people, well, I, in a counseling session, well, you know, they're doing, going off some weird way or whatever, and I'm telling you, you know, that's contrary to God. Well, you know what? He has to forgive me. God does not have to forgive you. God has chosen to forgive you. And if you have that attitude, is there really a spirit of repentance? And if there's not a really a spirit of repentance, have you really gotten forgiveness of sins? Something to truly consider for people who do damage to the grace of God. We should hold it in value. Every day I should re-examine my life and the events of my life. Am I living a life that is worthy of that grace? The third verb cast even a darker shadow in verse 43, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Now when it says they loved him, that word loved is agape, that's a sacrificial love. They were willing to sacrifice for the praise of men more than they were willing to sacrifice for the praise of God. And really this kind of takes us full circle from last week. To see this, this word praise in verse 43, it's the Greek word doxa, it means glory. They love the glory of men more than the glory of God. And what John is doing here, and he plays on words a lot in his gospel and through his epistles, he's doing a play on this word as he's, he's examining what really is happening, but based upon what has just been said, because again, these guys are stealth believers well, just earlier he said, look at Isaiah. Look at verse 41. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory. And what did he do when he saw his glory? He spoke of him. If you see the glory of God, if truly the, understand the glory of God and how we see the glory of God is through Christ preached upon the cross, you speak of him. But if it's the glory of man you allow to overshadow the glory of God, not that it does, but if you allow it within your life, you're not going to speak of him. What happens when your priority is the glory of man? Spiritually speaking, it's absolute silence. So back to the original question. Is it possible to be a secret believer? The Bible as a whole seems to say no. Romans 10, 9 through 10 if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. But on the other hand, and this is what, I'll close, this is what I want to leave you with here tonight, uh, as far as assuming you're a born-again believer and you're vocal about it. On the other hand, who's to say that these men here, saved now, did not confess him later? Who, who, no, you know, maybe they need the encouragement. Maybe they need the teaching. Maybe they need the training. Maybe they need the example. Because, again, that's what we're to be do, told to be doing. We're told to make disciples. Now, I just don't go up to somebody's share and, boom, he becomes a disciple. This person needs nurturing. This person needs growth. He needs to put forth effort. It's part of what we were doing the other night when we had all the ladies in here for the ladies' Christmas dessert. The idea is discipleship. 
I don't remember. There was about four ladies who made a commitment to Christ. I don't know if they were rededicating. I, I just don't know. But I like to think when we see people who have made commitments, part of it is maybe somebody coming to Christ. Maybe it's somebody coming back to Christ. Maybe it's somebody realizing they were far away from Christ. And it's all about discipleship, and it's all about the growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, And the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. They weren't just adding here, they're multiplying now. Disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Acts 15, 5, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and commanded them to keep the law of Moses. So again, there's these Pharisees, it says, who believe, but still there's that lack of maturity. And in that, we need to see that there's work to be done. There's work always to be done in our lives, but God, as he does that work, even in the midst of doing that work, he'll do the work through our lives into somebody else. So, because of your vocalness, because of your proactiveness, activeness, activeness in your Christian faith, are people growing in the knowledge of Christ? See, it's good that they know you're a Christian, but they need to see your Christianity. They need to experience your Christianity because what that is, it's God filling you with his glory, the Holy Spirit, but it's the glory going out. It's the glory going out of your life because we just saw when you see the glory you speak of God. Father, once again, we just thank you for your word, and Lord, just how applicable it is to our lives, and obtainable, Father, for those who set their minds to do these things. And Father, I just pray that we truly would have that heart. And so, Father, as you have filled us with your spirit, I just pray, Father, that we would see your spirit do a great work. And Father, I pray Lord, if we've ever had that complaint that we've never seen anybody saved, we've never been part of somebody's salvation, may we consider ourselves. Have we been vocal about our faith? Have we been living your word? And I pray, Father, that we would make an honest evaluation, that you would reveal these things to us. And, Father, we would make the change if the change is truly necessary. And so, Lord, again, we have such a great opportunity this time of the year when people's minds are turned at least toward spiritual things, we have an opportunity to display the truth, to speak the truth. So fill us with your spirit once again, enable us to do that, that you would be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? Well, this Christmas season, our Thursday nights are going to be going on as usual. I'll be with the, the Gospel of John with the exception, probably do a Christmas message between the 18th and Christmas, so two weeks from tonight. We'll be back in John next week. Um, this Sunday is going to be a normal schedule, but a week from this Sunday, we're having our Christmas outreach, and we're going to have two services, Sunday morning, 8.30 and 11 o'clock. And then that Sunday night, we're going to be look, watching the movie, the Nativity movie, and uh, we're going to open up an hour early. And what are we having, pizza and a salad or something like that? So just to foster fellowship that night. And so keep up in prayer. Keep up in prayer, our church. Keep up in prayer, just again, this opportunity or the opportunities that the Lord brings to you. God bless you guys. Good night.